Welcome to the first Gloucestershire Showcase podcast interview special. It's our great pleasure to present an interview with filmmaker and film critic Mark Cousins. First question is, uh, when did you decide you wanted to get into the film industry? Was it a particular film that you saw that inspired you? or? It's funny, I feel I'm, <clears throat> I'm still trying, I, I don't know, I don't feel like I'm in the film industry, you know, I, you imagine that it's Hollywood or something and it's a citadel that you need to storm, you know, and I feel I'm always, I'm a constant amateur, you know, an apprentice, and I think it should say on my passport, like apprentice filmmaker, <laughs> you know, but having said that, um, I, it was, I fell in love with cinema really young. I was eight, eight and a half years old. I remember seeing films on TV and just being amazed by the atmosphere, this kind of mysterious, these mysterious worlds that that I could lose myself in. I was really interested in science and in art, and somehow cinema seemed to combine both. You know, it seemed to be technical, but also full of emotion and poetry. So it was then, I remember a Hitchcock season on BBC Two, which I loved. I remember specifically watching horror movies, which I absolutely loved. And um, uh, and But the film that did it for me more than any, I think, was Touch of Evil, Orson Welles' film. Oh, right, yes, yeah, a classic film. Um, it's got a great opening shot as well. I mean, just from a filmmaking point of view, it completely blew my mind just trying to watch that whole 20-minute tracking shot. Yeah, genius, the first but... time, I, first time I went to Los Angeles, I went straight to Venice, California, where that opening shot of Touch of Evil was done, and I walked through the shot, and I got goosebumps. Fantastic. I guess um, the whole "you were about eight and a half" thing leads into the eight and a half foundation that you've set up with Tilda Swinton. Yes. Um, what was the genesis of that? And well, Tilda Swinton wrote a beautiful uh, lecture, uh, I think, for the San Francisco Film Festival. Her eight-and-a-half-year-old son said to her one day, Mummy, what did people dream about before, the, before cinema was invented? And she thought this was a lovely, provocative, rich question. So she wrote a long answer about cinema and dreams and childhood. I read, I read the letter. It was published. And I found it so moving. I remember I, I, it, it brought me to tears. Um, but because I don't have an eight and a half year old child, I wrote it. I wrote my response to her letter to uh, my eight and a half year old self, right. uh, a boy living in Belfast, growing up. You know, there was a, a war on, etc. And I just said to him, "You lucky thing, you've fallen in love. You found this thing that you love that will be with you, this companion for the rest of your life." And um, and in that letter, I suggested that. Uh, I would love if the films could magically come into this boy's life, i.e. my childhood life, uh, films from all around the world. And so that's, that idea, Tilda and my idea, was an eight and a half foundation that, where we would give films to children. Right, that's fantastic. I mean, um, I've read both the letters because obviously they're on the website. And oh, I, yeah. Um, I've got a three-year-old son who... Uh, he likes film, but he's not got the attention span to sit through a whole one, but he'll sit there for a bit. I showed him um, A Town Called Panic, Oh, wow, wow, wow. Yeah. And um, he was absolutely, he found it hilarious. I mean, he couldn't understand it. He wasn't reading the subtitles, but he found it absolutely hilarious for the half hour that he could, his attention span to stick with it. I but, agree, um, that's good. I, I found myself wishing that he was eight and a half, so I could, I'm really looking forward to just taking him to the cinema for the first time. And yeah, and I think the kid, when they, when they haven't hit the teenage years, they're quite imaginatively open, and then they're not trying to be cool and, and strike attitudes and everything. So I think that pre-teen time is a time of extreme... Um, emotional richness for children yeah. and 
openness, accessibility, you know, you open a window in a world of, of, for a child at that age and uh, it is amazing for them. Yeah, no, I mean, it's watching him watch films, he very much likes like Tinkerbell films and that, which are aimed more at sort of girls, but he's just, he's got no pre-inhibitions about it, it's just yeah. something he really likes and it's fantastic to see that sort of innocence and just that's, ability that's to love a film on a basic level like that. But I mean, um, when setting up the Eight and a Half Festival, how how easy was it from concept to actually reali uh, realising it? <clears throat> it? Because Eight and a Half was an unusual idea, it was to create a new birthday for a child between their eighth birthday and their ninth birthday. It was sort of difficult to to get people to help us, you know. And and we got we got good funding, very good funding from. Um, the Creative Scotland, the organisation in Scotland where I live, wh whose job is to develop audiences and get young people interested in the arts. So we got money from them, and then we went to the film industry, and uh, a studio like Universal Studios in Hollywood gave us DVDs of lots of films. The idea was that we would give children, we would route, I've got it here actually, we would give children one of these cards that says happy eight and a half birthday and then they would get a, a gift from us. Where do you see the gift? Look, it's a silvery box. I don't know if the silvery is coming across with a little badge saying eight and a half on it. Oh, and in, inside this box there are three brilliant films on DVD. And so we went to the film industry and said, you know, uh, can we buy these films really cheaply or or, or can you give us them for free? Yeah. And so the idea was that it's giving a gift to children from Tilda and me and our team, but also from the film industry. And it took a while for the film industry to get the idea of that, but I hope increasingly they will. Yeah. Um, how did you go about sort of picking the films? Is it very much like with the first movie that you had a list of ones predetermined or were there ones inputted in that yeah. the kids have yeah. input in it? Children, I love, I love um, kids' films, you know, and uh, we know what kids are watching. We know kids are seeing Disney films and Pixar and all that sort of stuff, and that's a lot of that's great. Even Miyazaki, a lot of kids are getting to now, which is great. So we tried to be additional to that. So we tried to choose films that were uh, extremely expressive or visually daring or imaginative in some way yeah. uh, that would capture p kids uh, just visually. But also, crucially for us, they had to be from around the world. So uh, one of the films we give kids is called King of Masks from China. Another one is, is called The Little Girl Who Sells the Sun from Senegal. Another one is The White Balloon from Iran. These are countries of China, uh, Senegal, Iran, that, that kids don't associate with movie making. So we wanted to show films from around the world as well as films that were very imaginative. Yes, that's, that's very cool. Um, do you, is, do the kids see it as that? I mean, like with My Little Boy, I showed Marietti, the Miyazaki uh -huh. film, and he loved it on the base level that he thought it was a Tinkerbell film, he could relate to it through <laughs> that. You're a very good dad, obviously. Well, I've and force yeah, you know, we we have shown we have given I think in Scotland something like five thousand films away to between two and three thousand children. Most nearly all the films are subtitled. Not one child, not one has commented on the subtitles. When you talk to a lot of people, distributors and parents and everything, they always say, "Oh God, it'd be so hard to get children interested in foreign films, subtitle films." Not a single child has commented on this. They just get drawn in by the story, you know. So I, I, I love that. I absolutely love that. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. I mean, again, um, I find myself sitting with my little boy watching The Illusionist, the <gasps> French yes. animation. Yes. And um, 
again, he was completely engrossed in that, and there's very little dialogue in it, and I wasn't sure yeah. how long he'd stick with it, but just, it's fascinating to sit and watch, I mean, that's my only experience of watching something with a child, but it's just fascinating to sit with a child and see them just get completely immersed in that film, and it reminds me of when I was younger, and my dad used to take me to the cinema and that, and how you'd just be completely immersed in the world that was being shown to you, but I mean, to show a room full of children must be fantastic. And I think the word, you're using exactly the right word, which is immersion. You know, I think that what we have to do is, is, if possible, make magical, almost like theatrical experiences in which young people can see movies. Matilda and I do our festivals. Uh, you know, we, there's, we dance, we have spotlights roaming, we have glitter, we've got all sorts of, of fun, quite childlike things going on. And so if you create this context, which is attractive, which is enchanting, then within that context, you can put on what you could say are quite alternative or difficult or challenging films. But because you've welcomed people, because they've had a threshold experience of, of, of enjoyment and fun, then they trust you. And yes. I think that that's always been my experience. I've done a lot of film festivals and, and it's if you create the atmosphere, then people will really go with it. Yeah, no, I, I think it's great that you're showing sort of these films to children. I mean, the Pixar films are great, and they're also great doorways into sort of the Japanese animation. They're very Miyazaki-influenced in places. Yeah. But, I mean, there seems to be this thing in Hollywood that if a film's got subtitles or a budget of under 10 million or doesn't have big robots fighting each other, <laughs> then the kids just aren't going to go for it. And I think it's amazing that you've set this thing up and that you're inspiring younger people and that there will be a whole new generation of kids that are more open to film. And Do you know, you know what we did the other day? Um, um, we got 102 children from across Scotland to Stirling. We showed them George Méliès films, you know, from the very earliest days of cinema, and then we remade those films. And Millie's was used the simplest of techniques, as you know. You've seen yeah. Hugo, and you know you know his work. And he he would do things where he would cut a child in half with an axe, you know, <laughs> as a magic trick. And the children loved that, so we remade these films, and the kids got it so much. You know, people would say, "Oh, it's so hard to show all really really old scratchy movies to children when they're used to massive special effects and Hollywood sweep and glamour." And, and special effects and all like that, but even that's not true. You know, a child has got such bright eyes they can see into things so easily and so quickly, and they can scan a film for its magic or its wonder or its optimism or its imaginative plenitude, you know, and I've found that again and again in my work. How important is it to get them sort of making films, either remaking what they've just watched or going off and making their own little films like in the first movie or...? <laughs> Well, I, the key thing I always think is that what we have to do is make film lovers more than filmmakers. If we make film lovers, if we make, if we get loads and loads of kids every uh, every year to fall in love with cinema, then inevitably some of them will become filmmakers as well. But my focus pretty much is on the cinephilia, what it says in my t-shirt here, the kind of the the, the love of cinema, and I think too often the schemes that teach people, young people or old people, kids or adults to make films. They focus too much on the buttons, on the machinery, on the tripods, the equipment, sound recording devices, etc. And not enough on the poetics of the image, the poetics of the story, emotions, compositional questions and all that kind of stuff, you know. So I tend not to look too much at 
the filmmaking aspects of filmmaking and more at just the film-loving aspects of cinema. Yeah, I mean, that's something very much we're trying to get across in this festival as well. I mean, we're very keen to get the local school children involved as well and just to show them that filmmaking doesn't have to be... I mean, because when I was a child and i go and watch a film, it used to blow my mind as to how somebody actually made it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm from a different generation where you didn't have a video camera on your phone or you didn't have yeah. one that you could just slot into your pocket. But, I mean, what yeah. we're trying to get across to people now is that you don't need a massive budget to go and make a film. You can go and make a nice short little film with just imagination and a relatively Absolutely. cheap camera. Absolutely. Everybody, everybody watching this interview, most people will have a phone or something in their pocket and that's all you need and I think there's been a particular problem with the emphasis on the technological aspects of cinema it's, it's, that's one of the many reasons why more boys got into filmmaking and girls and that's a real problem you know yeah. so I think once we emphasize that filmmaking is not about technology and everything like that then more it'll, it'll exclude girls and young women less you know and that can only be for the benefit of the movies yeah, I mean, for a long time on my desk, I had a little quote from Shane Meadows from an interview with him where he said, if you're a filmmaker, make films and just carry a camera around in your pocket and Absolutely. just shoot stuff that you see. Absolutely. Every single place I go, night or day, whether it's to work or to play or to dance or to walk, I bring a camera with me. And my the last film that I made, which is which uh, is just starting to be shown around now, it's a feature-length film and a cost me less than £10 uh, to make, and it was made entirely with found footage. I treat my camera now like a diary, like yeah. you would just scribble down notes, and it's it's just a brilliant way to work, I think. Yeah, and that film is the, uh, what is this film called, Love? Which That's correct, right, indeed. I'm fortunate yes. enough to be able to see, because we're hoping to be able to put a show in of it on in Gloucester, because oh. it's very much the kind of film we want to show people, to be, show that this is what you can do. Uh, very nice. And um, yeah, we're very much hoping to get that up and going. But yeah, it's just a fantastic film. I just find myself thinking about it a lot. I really want to watch it again, but I also want to digest it completely. Oh, I find that sometimes when you think about a film and then go and watch it, you you need to get that full thought process out and then yeah. go back and watch it again. But I've just, I mean, I was completely mesmerised by it. It's very poetic, very beautifully shot. Um, oh, thank you. Well, literally it cost less than 10 pounds to shoot you know and, and it was just so liberating i just made a 15 hour film the story of film as you know yeah. and i just wanted to make something simple and you know the way you know a paint, painters just have the desire to paint you just have the total desire to paint and often painters end up painting themselves because they're available and cheap yeah and i ended up in my in this in this film that we're talking about filming myself because I was available and cheap, but so much had I the desire to film and to try to experiment with, with music and the poetics of film that I just ended up filming myself, you know, why not? <laughs> how, how did that project come about? Because, I mean, you've said before, you put it on the website as well, that um, you've always prided yourself in the meticulous plan in the film. How easy was it to sort of just go from the post, which the postcards on the website are fantastic to read. That's how you did it, but how did you, how did you go about sort of planning how much planning went into it did you just take the camera out um uh, i zero planning I, I i was filming everything everything that i did as i say but i had no idea at all to make a film i wanted to rest after six years of filmmaking yeah and i found myself with three days with nothing to do and what's my idea of rest i, I don't lie on a beach and do a beach novel or anything like that my idea of resting is taking a camera and just lining up shots and looking at the sky and filming animals and kids and street life and everything and i was in mexico city and i thought oh, i had an idea for a film and it just came straight into my head and 
almost like fully formed in a way. I remember interviewing Paul Schrader, who, as you know, wrote Taxi Driver, and he said that Taxi Driver leapt out of him like an animal. And and I sort of feel this little film leapt out of me like an animal. Because there's the bit in the film where you can see where you have the idea where you're doing the push-ups. Yes, yeah, that's, that's a fantastic a little bit. I mean, I'm the same. I, if I try and have any kind of downtime, that's when my brain goes into overdrive and so I yeah. end up getting all these different projects going and trying to go on one go. But, but I mean, I think um, that's how it works. You know, just when you're least expecting, do you have a good idea or something? Yeah, I said I find overthinking it as well is very much can be the undoing of a project. Sometimes I think it's better to just go with it and run with it and see what you get. I mean, especially at the level that we're at with regard to filmmaking, where we're self-finance, so everything's done incredibly cheap and all for free so by getting it that way i mean we're at the ideal stage to sort of mess around and do what we want with film and if it works fantastic if it doesn't it's no real big loss but i mean we're also in an age now where you can just post things online and and from that but i mean how easy was it for you to as somebody who always prided himself on meticulously planning films to just not do any planning at all was there any point where you were your brain was trying to overthink it or where you find yourself jotting down notes for what to do or did you just completely switch off and free film as it were yeah yeah uh, pretty much the latter could i just go back to something you said there because it's very interesting you said you're at a point where you're free to do everything and there's no there's no funding or anything lots of really established filmmakers are trying to get back to that stage yeah. where you know they're just free to do whatever they want to do and there's nobody telling them and there's no producer or committee and like that so it's a kind of it's a very it's a poor state. You've got no money, but boy, is it intellectually free and editorially free. Yeah. Um. As for me and my film, yeah, I had I had always been a planner. I'd always been rigorous. I'd always had really low shooting ratios, like three to one. I.e., I shot very little. I always know knew what I wanted, but increasingly, I've been influenced by the music world and been thinking about how musicians make stuff. You know, you can make stuff in your bedroom, you can make music in your bedroom, and how jazz musicians work, which is purely improvised. And so I decided, why don't I have a look at that? Okay, yeah, um, I guess you mentioned the story of film there, it's a good time to sort of come on to that. I mean, how did that come, obviously it was the book to begin with, how did it? you decide that you were going to turn it into, a, do you see it as a TV series or a no, film broken um, down into it, 15 parts? <clears throat> no, it's a, the story of film, the film... It's just a film. It's a single 15-hour thing. You know, it's yeah. shot and cut for the big screen. And if you, you notice, there are no TV techniques in it. You know, when, when somebody appears, their name doesn't appear on screen. Uh, there are no reverse angles. There are no still images, you know, photographs with moves in on the photographs. Yeah. There are no summaries of things, etc. Um, so I just saw it as something that hopefully people would watch on the big screen or you know, on a on DVD box set or something. Um, the idea came about because I'd written the book and of the story of film, and the, the, the idea for the book was I sort of wrote it for my 15-year-old self, for somebody who was interested in movies but didn't have loads of movies available to them. And so um, it was supposed to be accessible, which I hope it is. It doesn't use any of the fancy terms that often come up in film history and film criticism. The word auteur doesn't appear once, uh, or all that kind of stuff. So an accessible history of the movies, ignoring showbiz, etc. So then a producer came along to me and said, why don't we try to make this into a film? And we did, and it's and it, we we worked for three and a half years without pretty much any funding, tiny little bits of funding here and there. Uh, again, because with no funding, it meant that I was sort of 
free editorially to tell the story of film as I saw it and not have to stuff it with movie stars or not have to look at box office or anything, anything like that. And the very first thing we filmed was in Egypt about Arab cinema. So again, that's the unconventional way of work. Usually working, usually you would start with Hollywood or Bollywood or some of the big box box office stuff. Um, so it was nearly fully formed by the time that people came along to fund it. And it was exhausting. And we traveled around the world and... Uh, we were more surprised than anybody could be that it was well received and it's now sold to 25 countries and playing in the big screen around the world and we are frankly amazed. Yeah, no, that's what, I mean, I um, taped them off the telly and ended up watching them in chunks rather than one a week. I think I watched them about five at a time. <laughs> I'd start watching one at about 10 o'clock and it'd be about 3 o'clock in the morning and I was still ploughing through them because I was just hooked on them. I mean, as a, sorry for, for your but there was the sleep deprivation that must have occurred as a result. That's fine, I had a small child anyway, so I wasn't sleeping much. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, um, as a film fan, I always thought I knew a lot about film and then I'd never even really considered, obviously I was aware of cinema from Egypt and other yeah. places in the world, but I'd never really thought about it. I mean, it's fantastic you didn't use the word at all because as somebody who did a film studies course, if I ever heard the word at all again, I would... <laughs> <laughs> or mise-en-scene, the word or mise-en-scene, mise yeah, go insane. But um, no, I mean, it was fantastic. Uh, Thank you. I think the more you get into film, it's very difficult to find a programme that speaks to you on... I mean, there's very little programming for filmmakers or people who like film anymore beyond sort of dumbed-down stuff on telly, on the BBC yeah. and that, which I won't name. And, <laughs> And that sort of thing, whereas there used to be, obviously you, Alex Cox and yourself were involved in, you took over from Alex Cox with Movie Drome, and then there was yeah. Scene by Scene as well. There yeah. used to be a plethora of things like that, and now it's very rare, you occasionally get a night of it on BBC4 and more for occasionally do yeah. something. So I mean, Story of Film was just a massive breath of fresh air, and something that actually taught me stuff that I didn't know, as well as just telling me the stuff I already knew. And, well, I'm, I'm delighted by that, you know, and I'm, as I say, I'm very surprised that we got away with it and that it went on TV, you know, it, it, as I say, it was made for what it was. We didn't know if it would go, go on TV or not, but we're absolutely delighted that it did because, of course, TV gets into people's houses and they can take it and watch it in their own time, you know, yeah. and I, I think that thing about the story of film is it's of its time. It couldn't have been done in the era before DVD because the research or getting film clips would have been impossible. So it had to be done in the era of DVD. It also has, I think, the spirit of, uh, you know, they were living in a global age where every, where um, conglomerates and international capitalism and all the, all the, you know, international world of money runs everything. Uh, you want to make things that are equally international, but not about money. And that was, for me, the key thing about the story of film. It had to be boldly international. It had to be about Ethiopian cinema and Iranian cinema and Chinese cinema of the 30s and etc. as much as Hollywood and Bollywood. It had to decenter Hollywood and Bollywood, you could say. And um, so it had to be passionately international, uh, but not slavishly following showbiz, marketing, etc. Because yeah. otherwise we just end up talking about the same films all the time. Yeah, no, that's it. I mean, um, so how easy was it to get the clips to use in the program that you talk over? And were there any clips that you really wanted to get that you couldn't get? Or was it relatively straightforward with regard to getting them with copyright and that sort of thing? We, 
we it's funny I've been asked this question so often, particularly in America, and I, we didn't clear any of the clips. Uh, we use the fair use, fair dealing law, which applies in Europe and America and most of the world, and that law allows a scholar to use an extract of an artwork for scholarly or educational purposes without having to go to the rights holder and ask permission. So just like um, a, a literary scholar who's maybe writing about Jeremy Hopkins or or another poet is allowed to use a few lines of their poem poetry. So I, a film scholar, am allowed to use extract from film clips. So there wasn't a single film anywhere in the world that we couldn't get the ex, the couldn't get permission for because we weren't asking for permission. Occasionally there were films that I de was desperate to show, that they, but they were technically in poor, too poor a state that the archives hadn't maintained them properly, but there was never an issue with copyright. And we simply couldn't have done it if there was, and, yeah. and we were bold in that regard. And so, uh, every single clip has been seen by, uh, by lawyers in both Europe and America and approved in, that they're used properly within the law. That's interesting. I didn't realise that. I mean, that was one of the things that blew my mind. It's like, how did he get all these clips? Yeah, it amazed me that so many people asked about that. You know, it's fascinating. I didn't, you know, I guess people are interested in copyright issues, you know, but everybody, so many people ask about that. On the story of film, with regard to the interviews, did you get all, all the interviews you wanted to get? Obviously, <clears throat> some people, certain people had died with regard to the films you were talking about yeah. and yeah. reading the liner notes in the DVD. People died after you interviewed them as well. Yeah. Was, yes. Um, we got most of the people that we wanted to interview. I knew I was desperately keen not to make a film which was full of talking heads, you know, like one of those TV shows where you get a, a sentence from one person, a sentence from another person, a sentence from another person. Didn't want to do that. So in a 15-hour film, there are relatively few interviews, I think 43 or something like that. You might expect a lot more. Uh, David Lynch said no, um, and one or two other people had said no, but, but I'd interviewed David Lynch three times previously, so he yes. was probably sick of me to be honest you know and a few other people said no I can't remember who else but we got most people we wanted as you can see again I didn't choose people for their celebrity yeah you know I chose there's a, a like the, the best Japanese person in the film for example is Kyoko Kagawa who's not a household name by any means in the western world but because she was in Kurosawa films and an Ozu film etc she was an eyewitness to a great time a great series of times and so I looked for, looked at people who, could, who would be a brilliant eyewitness to something rather than somebody who was famous and so we got nearly everybody I had to sit down and write a long detailed letter to people saying I know you've been interviewed a thousand times but here's why I think you should do it again so it wasn't easy to get people but you know if you do it with passion and knowledge then hopefully they say yes yeah i like the thing in the liner notes as well about the baz Luhrmann thing you were hoping he hadn't read the book because you weren't a big fan of strictly ballroom oh yes i know but he had boy had he read the yeah. book and he knew my work inside out I, I was amazed at that you know and baz Luhrmann, baz Luhrmann is somebody who he spoke for nearly two hours on camera brilliantly analytical about the, his his type of very expressive melodramatic cinema yeah. versus what he calls, you know, minimalist or keyhole cinema. So of the people that I interviewed for the story of film, I think he was one of the most analytically brilliant about what cinema is. Yeah. See, I find Baz Luhrmann, I like Baz Luhrmann's directing style very much. I'm not a huge fan of his films. I really liked Moulin Rouge, but that was more from a filmmaking point of view. I thought that was a stunningly well put together film. But I mean, how easy, 
how much of your personal opinion on film comes into your interviews do you <clears throat> obviously you need to find the balance but yeah what I would say about the story of film in general, some people have said it's a very subjective history of cinema, and I'm not sure that it is. You know, in terms of my personal opinion, I think it's more objective yeah. than most because it covers the whole world rather than just the bits of the world that we know about. And it covers the great female directors as well as, well as the great male directors. Yes. So in that sense, I think it's more objective than most film histories. However, once you decide that you want to look at for I don't know like gender in Australian cinema of the nineties or the or gender in Australian cinema and I felt it was important to look at maleness and femaleness in Australian cinema because that's one of the big themes in Australian yeah. cinema and you could say in Australian society as well. So once you decide to look within that, then my choice becomes more subjective. Yes. Did Baz Luhrmann? I think so. Which of his films is the best? Moulin Rouge, in my opinion, but they're more subjective calls, you know, but yes. I think geographically I'm more, it's more objective than, than most, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I love the thing you did that, like you say, they weren't standard talking heads, whereas instead of having their name up, you had them writing their name on a window, or yes. I thought that was a lovely little touch. I mean, um, did was it planned, the um, writing their names on the window, or was it something you came up with on the spot, or? Yeah, I wanted to, uh, I think, I can't remember who we did that with, First, I wanted to do different things with different people, yeah. you know, to make it a little bit more visual. And I like the idea of signatures, you know, because I'd be talking to people about their directing, directorial signature, their style, as it were, you know. So I thought, why don't I get people to sign their names? But then uh, we had to work so fast. Uh, that we, I didn't even have time to do those shots with some people. So now everybody signs their name on a piece of paper or on a window or something like that uh, because we were working so fast. Yeah. But no, that's, I mean, like I say, I'm mean, a massive fan of story film and um inspired me to go out and look for look into the films that you mentioned, some of which I've not found yet. <laughs> <laughs> but, I know, I know. But that's the thing, you know, you want to create... Even if, even if some of those films that I mentioned in the story of film are not currently available on DVD, what you want to do is create a kind of desire for them, a longing for yes. them. You know, this is something that I'm really interested in. Appetite generation, how do we get hungry for cinema? How does the child get hungry for cinema? You know, if, if you can get it immediately, if, if I mention a film in the story of film and it's just a click away and you can see it five seconds later after you've heard about it, Maybe you don't get as excited to see it as you might have done if you'd have to wait for a while, you know. So it's that waiting process in in culture, you know, and in human psychology that I think is very interesting. The wait, the waiting to see something, you know. And I was I've said this before, but I heard about Citizen Kane I think when I was ten or eleven, but I didn't see it until I went to university when I was eighteen. So that was seven years or eight years of longing to see Orson Welles' film Citizen Kane. And that is what cinephilia is about as well. You know, it's about desire. I'd like to talk to you about the first movie in more detail as well, if possible. Sure. Which I was aware of you from scene by scene and movie drone from my youth. Yes. And, <laughs> and that, and then I found out about the first movie when you were interviewed on the Komodo Mayo show. Oh yes, yes. <laughs> and um, which is I've got the podcast and I was re-listening to it again ahead of this, but um. How did the first movie come about? What was the genesis of that? Well, I'd been making, in, in the, eight, uh, the late 80s and 90s, I made documentaries, and uh, quite serious documentaries in various subjects. And then I became, you know, something else, a film critic. But I decided that I wanted to go back to filmmaking and, to, and make feature-length 
films rather than hour-long films for TV. Um, and I was talking to a producer called Joe Parry, and we were talking about Kurdistan and Middle East, the Middle East, and how brilliant Kurdish people are, how much we love being in Kurdistan, and how much the Middle East is misrepresented on our TV screens, because people from the Middle East are pre presented as victims, and the Middle East itself is presented as a problem rather than a place. So the, the idea slowly emerged of making a film in the Middle East, in Kurdistan, about the placeness of the place rather than the problem. And I've been interested in children and cinema for a long time, so the, 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 that idea emerged to make a film about kids and their everyday lives and in Kurdistan. So we went to northern Iraq, looked at various places, cities, towns, villages, came across this village, I just, I just loved it, it was on a human scale, it was, it was very beautiful. I hadn't been my own cinematographer before, this was going to be the first time I'd shot a film myself, so I, <laughs> I wanted to make it easy on myself to choose a place that was so beautiful that I couldn't screw it up yeah. um, if, if I didn't photograph it properly. So went there, very nervous, very risky, 45 degrees, heat, etc., very very concerned that I would make a bunch of rubbish, but um, I knew by that stage I was getting an increasing sense of composition, of the poetics of cinema, of using long takes with no camera moves and lots of music, etc. So my own style was evolving and emerging, and so I made a film in the end which started about me and ended up about the children. It was almost as if I was handing the, the means of production, the little camera, onto the kids. and. Um, Again, didn't think it would be any good. Came back, started editing it, and knew there was something there that would that was moving me and my editor Timo Langer, who's crucial to my work. But then we started to show it to other people, and they seemed to like it too. Yeah, I mean, um, how surprised were you at the quality of the films you got back from the kids? I was gobsmacked. You know, the kids. I I, I gave the kids no tuition whatsoever. You know, literally just gave them like a camera like this and said, press this button. And they pressed the button, and they came back, and they made, I think, beautiful films, you know, of diff in different genres. They did interview films, they did observational films, they did playful films, they did jumping the river type films, but also, um, as you know, um, films where they commented quite poetically on their lives, and that again really, really encouraged me. That that sense that. Filmmaking, you don't need to endlessly teach people about it. You need to just sort of almost free them up and give them a space in, in which to express themselves. And I was amazed at the quality of the films the kids made and very, very relieved as well because if their films had been rubbish, I would have had egg on my face big time. <laughs> I mean, a lot of that freeing up with regard to freeing them up to make films and that came from the um, films you chose to show. I mean, how did you choose the films? Yes, that you chose, uh, I know uh, that Komodo That was crucial. These were kids who had never seen a movie on the big screen before, so I had to show them very visually exciting, imaginative, playful films. It took me about probably ten seconds to choose what films to show them because I know what I think the most visually exciting kids kids films are. Crucially, also because they're in the Middle East, you know. Uh, 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 it would be completely wrong to bring a big bunch of American films over. That would be like imperialism or something like that. So I showed them only just only one American film, Steven Spielberg's film, E.T. But beyond that, I just wanted to show them films with not loads of dialogue, with lots of magical properties that would encourage them to think of film not only as a medium about re reality, but also about dreams. And so I showed them dreamlike films. 
Were you surprised at how they read into the films? I know, again, going back to the Komodo Mayo thing, they called you to task on the singing ringing tree. And then you said about... <laughs> well, they're just wrong. I mean, what would they know? What would Mark Komodo know about cinema anyway? <laughs> but, I mean, you said that the you asked the kids... Tree, you know, kids love to be scared. I saw singing ringing tree when I, I was a kid, and it scared the hell out of me, and I loved that, you know? And, I, and, and, and singing ringing tree is also extremely like the Shrek movies. Yeah. Uh, and so I was delighted to show the kids a scary film. And as you, if you've seen the singing ring and tree, you'll know it's about a prince and a princess. But when I asked the kids in, in Iraq what, it's, what it was about, they completely ignored the, the love story. And they said, it's about a nasty little man who brings bad weather to the place. So they zeroed quite into the darkest imaginative bit of the film, which I thought was fantastic. Yeah, no, I, I really liked that when you mentioned that before. I mean, it's fantastic. I I mean, that's one of the things about kids with film is just how they read into it on a completely different level to how a critic would read into it or just how an adult film fan would read into it. And I mean, um, that's a beautiful thing. Absolutely. But I mean, um, with regard to the filmmaking element of it, did you edit as you went or did you just film everything and then do it when you got home or...? Uh, yeah, good question. Um, because this was the first time I filmed anything myself, I took... Timo Langer, my editor, with me, um, because I wanted, I wanted simply to check that it was in focus. To be honest, because I didn't, wasn't even sure how to focus a camera, um, but I also just wanted to. This is my first feature, etc. So I wanted to have a look at it as it was going along. And there's a balloon sequence in the film. I came back one morning at eight o'clock, having sh shot that, and I had a bit of music on this very laptop that I'm talking to you now. A bit of music and. Uh, that my producer friend John Archer had given me, and I said, Timo, try that, and he cut it with me not even being in the room, and I don't think we changed the frame of it, you know, so when you're making films, you're looking to get a tone, and I think that bit of editing in Iraq found the tone, which was gentle and childlike, and not afraid of big emotions, and that set the tone of the film, so I was very pleased that we did some editing in Iraq. Yeah, and obviously that did that then alter at all the way you went about continuing the film, or did you stick very much to your plan? Or it just encouraged me. It just encouraged me. I knew that the film had to have lots of color in it. I knew that the signature color would be red, for example. You know, I was showing a film called Red Balloon. I showed another film with about uh, uh, with redness in it. So I knew the signature film had had to be the signature color had to be red. And so it just encouraged me, you know, um, I don't, I think it maybe emboldened me to go further in the poetic direction that I was, or the dreamlike direction, you could say, that I was hoping to go in, you know, it, it, you could make a, a documentary film that was very fey or naff about a very, really serious subject like Iraq, but once I saw that sequence, I thought, we could really go for this, and we did. Yeah, and with regard to the music, as you mentioned before, I mean, how did you go about choosing the music to go in it? Because it's not necessarily the music you'd expect. It's not It's not Kurdistan music. I mean, I think there's no. one sort of Kurdistan yeah. track. But... There were, there were two, two crucial things about the music choice. The first is, if you watch Daytime TV, one of these programs about, you know, you know, find a new home in Spain or something. As soon as they cut to Spain, you hear Spanish music. Yeah. As soon as they cut to Germany, you hear German music of some sort. That's the cheap, cheap, cheap way of using music to establish a sense of place. 
However, this I wanted to get inside people's heads in this film. And when I travel somewhere, I'm hearing music that I know in my head, even though I'm somewhere else, you know. So that was the first thing. I didn't want to use music in that shorthand way. The music had slowly to become Kurdish, not quickly. And the second point was thing was that I knew it wasn't trying I was trying to make something that showed that cinema is in a way sacred, not silly or trivial or discardable. And so there's quite a lot of sacred music in there, you know, there's a piece a requiem, for example, in there. And it wasn't that that could have been awful. I know probably some people think it's awful to use very sacred music in that way, but I wasn't scared of that. You know, I wanted to show that for me, cinema is a kind of religion, so I just thought, go for it. Yeah. Um, I'd like to talk to you about yourself as a filmmaker, because obviously you started, or you've said before, you started as a filmmaker, and then you had all this knowledge about film in your head, so you had to get it out into some books and that, and then you became a film critic. How easy yeah. is it as a filmmaker now to switch off the film critic? Does the film critic <laughs> in your mind when you're making the film, or does the filmmaker completely take over? Or? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 that's a very good question. I speak French very badly, and when I'm talking to a French person, I'm trying to express myself, but I can see that I've only got three words to describe the weather today or whatever it is, and therefore I feel extremely limited. However... When I'm doing sh shots, when I'm trying to do a scene, I don't only, because I am a critic, because I've seen lots of films, I don't only have three shots in my head. I can, I can see many, many different ways that many filmmakers have used to film the weather, for example. You know, I can see how Tarkovsky would do it. I can see how um, David Lynch would do it. I can see how Jane Campion would do it. And it means that I've got far more options when I'm setting up a, a shot, a scene. So I absolutely use my knowledge of film history uh, like that. However, you have to do that, but also um, be quite childlike about yeah. how you film as well. So you have to be really, really emotional and childlike, but also try and use your film knowledge as much as possible to find the best way of filming a shot. I mean, um, yeah, you're saying that, that you love imagery and you love getting to know a city that you're filming in and you, you're always hunting a shot. Well, I think, I think um, that's, that's a kind of basic hunger. I remember when I was a teenager, uh, absolute desire to draw, to make imagery, you know. <laughs> I'm much better at images than words. And when I'm somewhere new, um, especially when I'm on my own, it comes from a certain loneliness that... When, when you're in Calcutta, when you're in Tehran, when you're in Moscow, and you're seeing all these incredible images, new types of architecture, new types of light, new types of atmospheric effect, you want to, I'm desperate to remember them and rem render them in an image. And that's, that's one, that was one of the joys of the story of film. I, I'm, I'll never forget walking around for, for 10 days in Paris in November when it was pouring with rain and then snowing, just the joy of trying to almost capture Paris or these other cities in imagery so that I would never forget it. You know, it's a sort of desire just not to forget these brilliant moving experiences you have when you travel. Yeah, I think that's a great thing about filmmaking as well, is it's the experience of filmmaking, particularly if you get to travel to do it, you're not just doing it in your yeah. own backyard or whatever. Yeah. Just that whole experience of filmmaking, I think, is... A really great thing. 
It's what Ben Benders talks about when he says the close relationship between motion and emotion. You know, when you're on the move, uh, when I'm on the move, I'm always really sort of moved and touched by what I'm seeing, the new types of things, you know, and, and that's that's the pleasure of filming that, I think. Do you find that you watch your films back and watch them and review the experience as much as you do review the finished product, or...? Well, what happens, a very interesting thing happens, that the film comes to replace your memory of what really happened. So when I think of my time in Iraq, I sort of remember the first movie as much as what it was like being there. Yeah. And I think that, you know, you hear people often say, I'm not not sure whether I actually remember this thing from my childhood or I, I remember seeing a photograph of it. Have you heard people say that? Yes. And, and it's sort of like that. I think, I don't know if you find this, but I find this as a filmmaker, that my memory of the real experience is replaced by the images in the movie. Yeah. So that's a sad thing in some ways, you know, but, but it's also, it's better than nothing. Yeah. Than simply forgetting it altogether. Yeah, no, completely. Um, we put a request out on Facebook for some questions from people to be emailed to us now, and we've got a few from people, with, um, a lot were calling for you to do another series of movie drone or scene by scene. <laughs> um, but with regard to scene by scene, one question we had was that, um, if you could do more of them, would you? And if so, who would you like to interview now? Um, I don't think I would do any more scene by scene. I I loved meeting the people, but I'm a, I, I get very nervous about being on camera and all the paraphernalia that goes with that, the crew and everything like that. And I also don't enjoy interviewing people all that much. So I don't think I would do any more scene by scene. I would like... I would like there to be detailed film interviews about film craft on TV, but I'd rather watch them than make them, to be honest. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I'm not comfortable. I get flustered. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but um, did you have any favourite ones of the people you did interview? or? Yeah, I, I was lucky enough to get to know a lot of the people that I interviewed. Um, so, for example, I'm sitting in my flat here in Edinburgh, and Jane Russell, the great movie star, you know, who worked with Marilyn Monroe and everything like that, she came to Scotland, and we hung out, and we would go to the pub. And so I became extremely fond of her. I was very fond of Jack Lemmon. I got to know him a bit. Rod Steiger, I used to visit him when I was uh, in Los Angeles. And so the chance to get to know these people uh, was pretty amazing. Um, in terms of the actual interviews... I think the David Lynch one is pretty good, and I think um, the Polanski one's probably interesting. I'm better at talking to directors than actors because I understand the craft of directing yeah. more than I do acting. I think. How did you find Woody Allen? Because what came across in that, I rewatched it on YouTube, but what came across in that is that you'd shown the film clips, but he'd say it's fine, you can let it play, but I'm not going to look at it. Well, I find him very polite and pleasant man. I liked him a lot. Mm -hmm. I did every bit of research into him, including to the controversial bits of his life, and I read the social work reports about some of the more famous bits of his private life, etc. And so I'd really come to some kind of sense of who he was and what kind of artistic and moral judgments he makes in his life. And I just find him extremely nice and easy to work with. He wouldn't look at the screen, as you know, he looked away, yeah. but he knew, he knew his work extremely well, and I completely identified with him not wanting to watch it. I don't enjoy watching my own work either, so I really respected him. Yeah, 
And um, Scorsese is another one as well, which Scorsese, like yourself, has got such a vast knowledge of film. <laughs> I imagine you could end up rolling tape on that for hours. And um, what was he like to interview? Uh, in fact, that that interview was, I think, 42 minutes long, which was terrifying because the the, the TV slot was an hour, so we had to make a 42-minute interview stretch for an hour. Uh, so that was very difficult. However, I'd interviewed Scorsese before, been lucky enough to spend some time with him out with an interview context and, uh, and just dazzled by him. And I just feel... Scorsese makes you feel less weird sometimes when you love movies you feel like you've come from another planet but scorsese you can see has come from the same planet yeah and therefore that's very comforting and satisfying and his knowledge is i just want to take notes when i'm in his presence so um i like him a lot i like his movies i, I particularly like his documentaries of the last 10 15 years or something like that um but it was pretty scary to have such a short interview with him on that on that day yeah, I mean, Scorsese's personal journey through American cinema was a big influence on me with regards yeah. to, I mean, yeah. that sits side by side on my shelf, a story of film with my <laughs> filmmaking DVDs. It's well, 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 yeah, I mean, I was, I, I, I was um, very influenced by that, and my editor, Timo, and I, I used Thelma Schoonmaker, the editor of that, used her, some of her grammar techniques in the story of film, and they just seemed, they Scorsese and Thelma Schoonmaker speak the language of cinema and editing so beautifully, we can only learn from them. Yeah. Um, another question we had was about Movie Drone. For a lot of the filmmakers, ourselves included, Movie Drone was a massive influence on our decision to go into filmmaking, to actually have somebody that knows what they're talking about talk about a film and then see the film. And that, I mean, <laughs> How do you feel about your place in that, in that you've potentially inspired a new... Well, I, w- I wasn't very good at movie drawing, but I knew my stuff, obviously. Um, it makes, uh, often when I'm out, if I'm in a pub and it's quite late, some person who comes up to me, c- comes up to me, and I think they're maybe my age or a little younger, said, when I was a kid, I loved movie drawing, and it makes me feel extremely <laughs> old. But, um, but more seriously, I'm just delighted, delighted when people say that... <clears throat> They saw movie drone when they were young, a teenager, and it sparked something in them. It really, really confirms my hunch, which is going back to what we were saying earlier about how to make movie lovers. We don't have to constantly force people to watch cinema or sit them down in front of it. You just have to give them one enchanting, magical, scary, uh, baffling apprehension of cinema. And it's like planting a seed in their head. It's like giving them the taste of some beautiful food or even a drug of some sort. Um, I think movie drum planted seeds in people's heads and they went on to love movies as a result. And I think that is fantastic. And the credit should go to the, the producer of the show as much as me. I mean, it's a shame there's nothing like that now. I mean, I know Kermode does his film club where you watch the thing online and then you go and find the film for yourself. Um, but it's a shame there's nothing like that on telly. It's like the old midnight movie sort of late night Channel 4 thing. It's just a thing of the past now in favour of whatever nonsense they've got on. <laughs> but I'll tell you something that there are still great films on TV. You know, I, I particularly think of what Channel 4 does at 2, it's usually 2.05 a.m. They do their history of Indian cinema. Yes. And they've got in films from the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s there. So they are there. It's just that we find them hard to, harder to find and we bu- don't bump into them and they're not in a regular slot. You know, So it's not that 
TV isn't showing great cinema. It's just that it's not as easy to find and it's more, it's just part of the general noise of our culture and the general noise even of digital television, you know. So that's the problem, I think. It's not, they're not there. Yeah, I find Channel 4 to be one of the better ones, particularly with their Film 4 channel, with having the director introduce their film or occasionally having a critic talk about the film before they show it. And that sort of thing. I mean, that's very much the sort of thing I'm looking for. It's great to watch a film. It's great to find out more about a film as well. Yeah. And be on the right path. And I think Channel 4 are one of the better ones for that. It's just a shame there's not the plethora of movie-based sort of TV programmes that there used to be and that what there is is quite dumbed down now. Be yeah. talk. It's absolutely true. I would blame, you know, not only TV. I would blame radio and newspapers and magazines. The whole, the whole film culture has to take some responsibility for the fact that it's all too a bit focused on the big American movie, whether it's any good or not. You know, yeah. I, there are lots of good big American movies. You know, but we're all a bit too focused on the market-driven film, you know, the film, I I think of it as bullying, I think we're bullied into watching certain films because they're on every bus and on every poster and they're on five screens in the multiplex that's simply not fair, that's simply not meritocratic, you know Um, and so that's my problem, I think TV has TV is too supine and um, too much in love with the big marketing budgets of Hollywood Uh, Yeah, I mean that's something that Kevin Smith sort of brought across as Red State and got a lot of press for with that you don't need to market a film like that anymore. And much like what's happening with what is this film called Love is that it's going on tour rather than yeah. being plastered on the side of buses and that. And yeah. do you see that as the future for independent filmmaking? Yeah, I mean, I think that <clears throat> independent filmmaking has always tried to use word of mouth and the the idea of the club, the urban club, you know, from the 1920s onwards, it has, right, across the world. Uh, I think that it's we rely less and less on advertising and marketing and the middlemen and the money men than we ever did, and I think that's good. Yes. Uh, so it's easier to get people to know about your film, uh, so that's very good, but at the same time, there are far, 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 far more films being made, and therefore it's harder for people to focus on your film as opposed to the 50 other films that they'll hear about in an email or on Twitter. That So it's good and bad times for independent filmmakers and alternative filmmakers and countercultural filmmakers. Yeah, I mean, with regard to that, there's the argument, um, I think it was Robert England said it when the Nightmare on Elm Street remake was announced, that you need films like that to make the money to be able to make the smaller films. I mean, do you see that as happening? Or yeah. do you see it more that that money seems to be put more into whatever the next big board game movie's going to be? Or Yeah, yeah I, I passionately believe in what they call in Hollywood the tent film. You know, I think that the reason why cinema is so visible in our culture, why, why it's so associated with entertainment, escapism, dream, etc., is because of the series of big films that have emerged in the, in the history of cinema from, you know, silent cinema through Gone with the Wind, through Jaws, through Titanic, whatever it is. So we kind of, I've never been a snob about cinema and I've never been, um, I've never been less than grateful to the big show-busy escapist fantasy films uh, because they draw everybody in. They make the medium itself enchanting. 
But the medium isn't only a medium of fantasy. It's about all sorts of stuff. It's abstract. It's personal. It's spiritual. It's realistic. It's political, etc. And the danger is that those other aspects are forgotten. Yes. So we have to be grateful to the big box office films, but not to think that they're only game in town. Yeah, I mean, there's a school of thought that you know the big budget budget blockbuster films have to be dumbed down for people to go, which has been with the Christopher Nolan Batman films and Inception that there seems to be a new wave of more intelligent blockbusters coming through which is great, more art house blockbusters I think they're being described as which I think is fantastic but you do then still get the your tentpole movies your safe bets, your Transformers um, something with a big star's name on it and that but I mean um, how do you view Hollywood now with regard to the constant cycle of remakes and see there's a place for them or would you like to see more imaginative big more like Christopher Nolan sort of films or yeah I mean, Hollywood and Bollywood and I like to talk about both together neither Hollywood nor Bollywood have have really been at the artistic center of cinema you know they, if, they let's say one in every 20 Hollywood movies is great, that's probably being generous. Probably one of the 20 Bollywood films is great, and that's probably being generous. And it's always been thus, I think. I don't think it's any worse now than it's ever been. Um, and those people who, the pessimists who talk about the death of cinema and the end of cinema, they tend to be only looking at Hollywood yeah. or Bollywood. You know? and so it, I don't think anything's changed. We've, it's only occasionally been great, the most commercial cinema, but when it's great, boy, is it great. Um, a couple more questions from our Facebook people. Um, one, it, it's a three-part question. Uh, okay. if, you had, if you had the chance to popularise a country's films that aren't the UK or the USA, uh, which country's output would you choose, why would you choose it, and what film best represents it? The country in the world whose cinema is most undervalued is West African country Senegal. Uh, I think that they... Their films are just so great and diverse, and yet most people don't know about them. And what, what, the films are so good for a number of reasons. The main reason is that cinema is more admired in West Africa in some ways than it is in the Western world. Literacy levels aren't as high there, and therefore cinema plays more part in the way people form communities, how they speak to each other, how they express their sense of self and nation, etc. And um, the best film, the film I would recommend most from, from Senegal, is a film called Hyenas by Gibral Mombeti, the sort of punk radical film of that country. Right. Um, and then, as a director, um, have you seen a film you wish you directed, and what would you have done differently? <laughs> <laughs> to put you on the spot. <laughs> Nearly... Every film in the story of film, I wish I directed, and there are thousand films in there. Uh, every day when I watch films, I'm reminded how modest my talent is as a filmmaker, uh, and how great people are. It's just daunting how great cinema is for me. However, there are films that I think are mostly great that are, that are flawed. A lot of American cinema is brilliant until its final act or its final 20 minutes and then it's really really flawed and i would boy would love to cut the endings of the spielberg films for some some of the spielberg 
films, for example, because he does so many things so well, but he just throws it away in the end. So, yeah, I, Spielberg's War of the Worlds, I could improve it a lot if I could wrap up the last 10 minutes. <laughs> How would you change it? I would shorten it. I would, there are like five endings to it, and I would remove four of them. Too many times, mainstream cinema tries to end in a crescendo or a summary, but for me, the most satisfying endings in art are more like grace notes. They're kind of modest or unexpected. They're not big. And too many times, mainstream cinema goes for the big ending. Yeah, yeah, no, I'd agree with that. Um, and then finally, um, what's next for you? What, are you? Have you got anything lined up to work on? or? <coughs> yeah. I, I would love to take a big long rest. I would love to. I've got an, a camper van, a 70s camper van, and I'd love to drive around it. But um, I've got another few film thoughts. There's a film called I Am Belfast that I'd like to make about a 10,000 year old woman who um, doesn't live in the city of Belfast in Northern Ireland. She actually is the city. So, so it should, it's a kind of playful film about that. And there are another couple of films that people have come to me with ideas for, and one of them I'm very interested in. And I'm finishing another book, uh, a book about getting out of the film world, the rupture, and it's about leaving cinema, even though you love it. Um, but not that, I just like to go on holiday. <laughs> there's, there's probably a film in the holiday, though. <laughs> um, and then something we just ask the people we've been interviewed so far is, have you got an anecdote from a funny anecdote or anything from your time in filmmaking or film criticism that you'd like to share or <laughs> um, nothing nothing really comes to mind to be honest you know I no I to be honest you know even that TV show I did scene up scene it was the way I saw it to the BBC I said you know this is not going to be about anecdotes because that's what Park, the Parkinson interview shows yeah. did you know so I, I just tried to get away from anecdotes so I probably should have a good one but I don't so. <laughs> that's okay that's great I would say that to, to people that cinema isn't just something that happens on a screen, like texting on your phone or a DVD or watching TV. Cinema isn't just some sort of everyday thing. You know, it it's like dreaming. It's more, for me, movies are almost like a kind of magic carpet ride that take you around the world, that show you other bits of the world. Uh, they also, when you're watching a movie or when you're making a movie, you can literally, you know, lose yourself in the experience. You can you can experiment with being other types of people. You can imagine yourself old, like your grandmother or your grandfather, or from a completely different country, or you can imagine yourself being somebody from outer space. But I can think of no other aspect of modern life which allows you allows you to give such have such imaginative freedom to escape reality your cares your troubles and experiment and become someone else that's what's so brilliant about cinema and that's why it's so great to try and make it okay um yeah i'd like to say thank you for your time and thank you for everything else and um yeah i look forward to speaking to you again thank you okay. take care thank you my bye. menu bye 
Thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please look out for more Gloucestershire Showcase podcasts in the future and be sure to pay to visit at www.thisishowcase.co.uk or alternatively look for us on Facebook.